You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, I chat with Dan Shapiro, author and CEO of Glowforge, about his new book, Hot Seat, the Startup CEO Guidebook. We also talk about why startups need co-founders and why startups are hotbeds for imposter syndrome and why that's okay. He also talks a bit about his new endeavor, Glowforge, and how it's different from other startups he's launched. Enjoy the show. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dan. Thanks for having me, Jen. So we're going to talk today about your your latest book, Hot Seat, the Startup CEO Guidebook. I'm curious to know what made you want to write this book? You know, it actually all started in a random conversation over a cup of coffee, and I I was almost duped into doing it. Uh, I was talking with uh, Ori at O'Reilly and said, you know, I have a startup. My walls are papered with your, your books, but I haven't seen the book that you've written about startups. Even though your stuff is really popular, you should do that. She kind of looked at me and said, well, you should do that. And <laughs> and after some back and forth, you know, I realized as, as I thought about it that there's um, tons of very sort of tactical, here's how to do uh, this aspect of a startup like you know, agile development. And there's folks who've written sort of autobiographical, here's my story. But the thing that I wished I'd had in my startup experience and was always missing was the honest and unfiltered look at the earliest days of a startup that was not just here's some advice um, because advice is plentiful and mostly wrong but that was here real experiences of the stuff that happens right and my personal experience i'm on my fourth or fifth company now depending on how you count was that especially in my first and second companies i was going through misery and suffering and had these terrible problems and thought I was the only one who did. And I was ashamed to talk about them because I, everybody else seemed to be doing, you know, everything was great and sunny. And I was like, wow, if my co-founders and I can't get along, how am I even fit to, you know, think about running a company or, or shouldn't we just give up now? And it was only years later that I realized that almost every set of co-founders has problems and has trouble getting along and runs into issues. And that's okay. And that there's techniques for dealing with that. And that this is actually really common. It's just people are kind of ashamed to talk about it. So I wanted to write the book that took lots of people's stories and put them together in the context of, look, startups involve a lot of highs, which there's no shortage of to read about in the press, but a lot of lows as well. And and those are not as often talked about. And and to talk about some of the strat- the experiences of those and strategies for dealing with them. Right, right. And and the subtitle of the book, the Startup CEO Guidebook, why the focus on on specifically on startup CEOs? Is the is the book only for startup CEOs? You know, as I've talked to folks about startups, there's a ton of curiosity now. Silicon Valley TV show is uh, you know, done nothing to to quell that the uh, the Facebook movie. But as people try to wrap their head around what these things are about, it it is in my experience it's easier to think about it a little more concretely and to look through it look through one lens to understand what's going on. And so the role of the startup CEO, you know, it's one of the most um, dramatic <laughs> and right. uh, you know, the most insane and crazy stories happen. I just talked to a friend literally this week who told me that in a showdown with the board, he basically emptied his savings account and said, I'm going to refinance my company and wipe you out as investors if you don't step up and invest yourself. Oh, wow. This is like straight out of a Wild West showdown, right? <laughs> except it's, you know, checkbooks and, and share prices. But this sort of thing happens with surprising regularity, even though you don't hear about it. And these sort of exciting stories make for really great reading, but they also help to sort of shed a light on the dynamics that underpin what's going on in a startup. So from my mind, it was a really great lens to look at all the things that happen in a startup. So even though it's you know called the Startup CEO Guidebook, it's actually only sort of secondarily for startup CEOs. Startup CEOs will read and be like, yep, uh, yep, that happened. Oh, that's an, that's an interesting way to think about that. And wow, I never knew this happened to other people. But the audience that I'm really excited about getting to see this is everybody who's not the startup CEO. So this may be the co-founder who is toiling at, at you know writing code or whatever else and a little confused about why it seems to be so difficult to, you know, I don't know, get an article in TechCrunch or to, you know, raise an angel round when it seems like everybody's doing it. Or it is for the employee who's gone to work at a startup because someday they want to do their own company and does not understand what the CEO does all day because she just seems to be sitting there tapping at the computer and on the phone and, you know, is gone half the time and isn't really clear on what's going on. Or it's for the person at a big company who's thinking, 
I want to take the jump. I want to leave. I want to go found my own company. Do I have the skills necessary to do it? What sort of surprises await me? What sits out there? And to understand what they're getting into and help avoid some of the worst problems. Or it's for the business school student who's trying to understand as they sort of, you know, think years ahead in their career, are they excited about ultimately being a, you know, a small but growing part of a big company or creating something themselves from scratch. So these are the audiences that I was especially thinking about, the people who are sort of on the cusp or who are touching or who are thinking about that role, um, either directly or indirectly, and understanding what it's there. And then, of course, the last reason is because I've always said, you know, every startup I've done, I've been the CEO, and it's not because I have some sort of ego trip where I have to be the CEO. It's just because I'm not very good at anything else. <laughs> so it's the thing I know and understand best. Now, you've mentioned uh, co-founders a couple of times. And at one point in the book, you note that it's almost a foregone conclusion that startups need co-founders. Why, why is that? Yeah, this is something that I think has been discussed a lot in sort of the, you know, the people who talk about startups. Um, Paul Graham, who runs the elite incubator, Y Combinator, mm -hmm. has talked about how they rarely invest in companies without startups. Techstars, who I work really closely with as a mentor, generally only accepts companies that have more than one founder. And I think there's a couple of reasons for this. And, and I think they're mostly pretty good and rational, but it's important to understand them. I'd say the number one best reason is that at a very fundamental level, the core skill that a CEO has to have is the ability to convince people to join the cause. And if the CEO isn't able to get people to rally behind the company flag, then it is really hard for the company to get anywhere. Interesting. So if you go to an investor, I, I by the way, I, let me just hit the pause button and put up a huge flag because there's an important point of terminology I've taken for granted that I should clarify, which is when I say startup, there's something that I'm referring to, and I mean it without any sort of value judgment. And what that is, is a technology company that is striving for fast growth. Um, actually, that's really it. It's a technology company that's striving for fast growth. And that's really different from most kinds of businesses. It's really different from a restaurant, which is striving for revenue and profitability very quickly because startups usually pursue growth in priority over revenue and profitability. Startups are very likely to take in outside capital, in many cases as fast as they can, and sell stock and prioritize, again, that sort of growth over revenue. And so there's a whole slew of companies which just doesn't apply. I talk a little bit about you know, why taxi drivers don't take venture capital in the, in the book. I actually wrote that chapter early on before Uber had become quite the force that it was. And so I go on to talk about why Uber does take venture capital while a taxi company doesn't. And so I, I just want to take that momentary digression and say, when I talk about startups, I'm talking about one very particular kind of company. And it's a company that is going to try to grow quickly. So it's almost certainly going to raise outside capital. And that's important as I, as I talk about co-founders, because the rules are different for a restaurant or a dentist's office or any other type of business. Right, right. So when an investor looks at a startup. And for startups, investors are, as I said, almost a foregone conclusion just by definition. That investor is the, one of the first questions they have is, is anybody going to follow the CEO? Can the CEO put together a great team? And when the CEO shows up alone, it really brings that question into doubt. Um, I mentioned in the book saying, I'm going to be a great startup CEO as soon as I can put a team together is a little bit like saying, I'm going to be a rock star as soon as I learn to play guitar. <laughs> Putting the team together is the essence of the job of the CEO. It is, it, is, it is core to that. So when a CEO shows up without co-founders, investors will rightfully ask if she's able to do the job. Now, that goes away. Uh, one common case where there'll be a solo founder is where that person is a, is a serial entrepreneur, where they've done it before. So that's not even a question. The investors go look and say, I know that you can put together a great team. You're doing this solo and you're going to go hire people as soon as you raise investment. Uh, that was the approach uh, I took with SparkBuy. I raised money and then immediately went and hired an amazing team. Um, but SparkBuy wasn't my first startup and it wouldn't have worked if it was. So that's one of the big reasons, I think, that co-founders are important. Very close behind that is that co-founders are, are typically, if you're doing it right, top talent who would be very difficult to afford otherwise, but who are going to be a part because they're coming in early and because they've got a great equity stake and because they're going to be a foundational part of the team. So you really get somebody a much higher caliber than you might be able to get as an employee if you bring them on as a co-founder. And that helps your chances tremendously. There's so many diverse things a startup needs to do from technology to market to sales to fundraising that bringing in 
diverse talents helps the odds of success. And, you know, the other reason that I think it makes a big difference is that an investor looks at the company and if they see that the co that there's co-founders, two or three co-founders who've already reached arrangements and split the company between them, and then let's say that investor buys 20% of the company, they're getting three great high caliber co-founders. Whereas if there's just one investor buys 20% of the company, they're only getting one. <laughs> so there's sort of a, you know, more um, research says that founders typically get paid less in cash than regular uh, employees. And oftentimes they're better qualified than, the, uh, or, you know, uh, more senior than the employees that an early stage company might have. So the investor basically just gets more for their dime. So for all those reasons, I think co-founders are are the norm. And of the companies I've done, um, it's been about an even split for me between having co-founders and not. The two, I've done three sort of tech startups and one absurd, bizarre passion project to make a board game. Um, it was a game called Robot Turtles that I just did because it was fun teaches uh, preschoolers how to program. It turned into the best-selling board game in, in uh, Kickstarter history. Wow. <laughs> but that was that was a solo endeavor, and it, and it wasn't a, a startup, right? It wasn't a technology company that was scaled for rapid growth. It was just a fun thing, so it made sense for me to do it alone. Um, okay. Sparked by, because I'd done it before, I was able to go do it without co-founders, but for this company I'm working on now, I'm uh, CEO of Glowforge, which is a company that's building a 3D laser printer. Basically, mm -hmm. combination laser cutter engraver. It's like a magic box. You can put materials in, push a button, and come out with things like uh, handbags and uh, wallets and lamps and uh, desktop organizers and really amazing, physical, beautiful objects um, that you can use or sell. A whole new take on the 3D fabrication market. And this required skills that were way beyond what I could do. And I wouldn't expect any investor to invest in the company without seeing those in place. So I started out with these two amazing co-founders who I never could have gotten on board for anything other than a co-founder role because they both were multiple successful serial entrepreneurs themselves. My CTO just sold his last company for $112 million. So he wasn't going to come on board as an employee, but I was able to convince him to come on board as a co-founder. Frankly, even that was challenging. <laughs> but, we're, but we're pretty happy now that, uh, that we put it all together. And so what kind of advice do you offer people um, in choosing a co-founder? How, how do you start? How do you go about it? Uh, the the, the two-word version of this I, I often give is um, date up. <laughs> you want to find somebody as a co-founder who is um, in every way that you can that you can imagine as good or better than you, but in a different way. So you want you want somebody who complements your skills, uh, who is strong where you're weak, and who is as capable and talented as you can possibly imagine. And settling on a co-founder is already kind of a death knell for the company because, as I already said, investors are going to judge you by the caliber of co-founder that you show up with. If you show up with somebody weak, then they're going to assume that you're not capable of recruiting great people because that person is going to be creating value for the company. And if they're not outstanding, they're not going to be creating very much value very quickly a whole host of other reasons. So the sort of the first big criteria is just their abilities to do the things that you're not so good at really, really well. And by the way, I think the complementary part is incredibly important too. Diversity in the founding team leads to the ability to do many things well, whereas when you hire three similar co-founders or two similar co-founders with highly overlapping skill sets, you wind up with giant blank spots. So the more difference you can bring to the table in your founding team, the better. Um, that's actually my only regret about the founding team of Glowforge, which is while we have a really nice sort of skill diversity with a product technology and the sort of fundraising CEO marketing stuff that I get stuck with, we wound up with three white guys, which gives us some blind spots as we design for a much broader audience than just us. So diversity in terms of skills, in terms of background, all those things, I think, lend a great deal to a founding team. Then the other thing is working well together. And this is crucial. The ability to get through those early problems that often destroy startups is key. So in sort of a, I was, I was uh, the editor of, of Hot Seat said, damn, this is, this part's a little bit dark. You're talking about <laughs> long startups and like the back of the book talks about startups failing. That seems like a weird thing to put on the back of a book about startups. And I'm a huge believer that the best thing you can do, sorry, the second best thing you can do is fail quickly. The best thing you can do is succeed. The second best thing you can do is fail quickly. But it's really difficult 
um, as founders to work through the problems of an early stage company together. How do you divide equity fairly? There's easy and there's fair. Easy is 50-50. Fair may not be 50-50. There was a, a startup I was talking to where there were five co-founders. Um, four of them were more or less new college grads with no experience. The fifth was a university professor who founded multiple companies before and sold them for hundreds of millions of dollars, and they'd split the company evenly five ways. And that certainly qualifies as easy, but I don't think it qualified as fair. Right. Um, so, so figuring that stuff out is incredibly painful, but if you can't get that right, if you can't have those discussions and make those decisions in a constructive way early on, if you sort of you know bury those problems deep, they're going to resurface later. And if you don't exercise those muscles early about learning how to work through really hard, challenging problems, understanding that one founder wants a steady salary and that's all that she cares about, and the other founder wants to make a billion dollars and anything less is failure, I mean, those, those are at odds with each other. And if you don't suss those out early on, you'll never be able to form a great working relationship that helps your company grow. So being able to work well together and to resolve conflict together is crucial. Uh, that said, it's not something widely talked about, but most um, successful, publicly traded, multi-billion dollar tech companies had multiple co-founders, and most of them didn't make it to the end. If you look at the history of Microsoft and Oracle and Apple, they all have co-founders who uh, dropped out after the first couple of years. Right. And, you know, some of that may be that they weren't, it, one could argue that it's that they just weren't right, but I think much more likely is that they were right for the early stages of the company, um, but ultimately weren't right for the long haul and couldn't grow with the company. And so, you know, that's that's the counterpoint to um, founder conflict and working well together is that the odds are that one or more co-founders drops out after a while. And that's unfortunate, but often true. That's interesting. So I want to talk a little bit, we'll shift gears here just a bit, um, about the organization of the book. You, you separated it into five sections, founding, funding, leadership, management, and endgame. I'm curious to know what shaped your choices when you were putting this together. You know, it actually all started with the stories. I talked to as many great entrepreneurs as I could find who would go on the record about what happened to them and took tons of notes and wrote up these stories. And, and for me, that's really the backbone of it. That was the thing that I missed when I was doing my first company. So my first company, Antella, I founded in late 2005, and there just weren't that many people blogging or talking publicly about their experiences. Ironically, there were two or three bloggers who were prolific in the startup world, who I read religiously. One of them is Brad Feld, who just led the round in uh, Glowforge, which was pretty exciting to have sort of my original mentor who didn't know who I was, but you know, served that role anyway, and finally as a board member and get to work with him. But in these, you know, in the early days, there was just nothing. Now there's a ton of writing, but a whole lot of it is self-congratulatory and here's what went right. And although we're seeing, I think, a renaissance of people talking about failures, they typically write about what went wrong only once the entire company has failed. And to me, the most interesting aspect of startups is the many failures that happen before success, the long slog of darkness before the dawn. And that's because when you are creating a company, you are going to see a lot of failure and a lot of pain and a lot of problems. And if you, like I did, felt like this meant you were doomed, it gets pretty dark and, and it's pretty hard going. So it started out with me trying to collect these stories from you know early stage founder implosions and disasters at the start of the book to things like Jeremy Jayek, the guy who created Vizio and and sold the company for multiple billions of dollars saying, yeah, I sold the, comp uh, the publicly traded company for more than a billion dollars to Microsoft because I wanted to do a new startup. You could have knocked me over with a feather when he told me that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so it started out with those stories. And then it was just as I looked at them, I said, how do I put these together along with some advice that is general enough to be useful and isn't me just saying, I did it this way, so you should do it too. Relatively little startup advice is is universal. Most of it's just, here's an approach that works. So how could I put in some useful perspectives, useful information and structure it? And it became really clear as I sort of looked at this corpus of stories and some information that I wanted to share that a chronological structure made sense because companies do have this natural life cycle. It starts out with you know a couple of people figuring out what they want to do. And in fact, the book even has a chapter on on the situation that I was in with Ontello, which is I have a co-founder 
and we're going to do a startup, but we don't know which one we're going to do. <laughs> to many people, that sounds crazy. It's like, what do you mean you're going to start a company and you don't know what right. you're going to do yet? <laughs> but it turns out a lot of really great startups started with either nothing or the wrong thing. They started out with two people who are passionate about entrepreneurship and wanted to find an idea that worked. And personally, I really like those companies because I think that they approach their product and um, and their customers with a tiny degree of detachment of like, we are in this to go build something great. We're not in this because we're so smitten with our own intelligence that, you know, we're going to try and spread it out to the world. And so I, I, I kind of like those. And what I share in the book is the process that my co-founder Charles and I went through to figure out what idea we were going to be pursuing because we had lots of ideas. I think we wound up with something like, uh, 50 odd ideas for companies, some of which were pretty darn terrible, but you know, some of which weren't and, uh, and tried to figure out a nice structured way to go through and do that. And there's some online tools linked to in the book that people can go through to do it themselves. Um, it's a process I've, so I've done some mentoring for the founder Institute and it's one of the things that I've sort of polished and worked through some of the founder Institute companies to help refine that. Uh, so it's a really good set of tools if you're considering a pivot or if you're just at the earliest stages figuring out what to do. And then it goes through with financing, which, you know, I really couldn't find any great book that was the startup side view of financing. The only exception being Venture Deals by the aforementioned Brad Feld um, and Jason Mendelson, which is just required reading for anybody who's raising money. It's very tactical and it's, you know, here's how you do it and here's the different structures and here's what they mean. And when you get this crazy legal document called the term sheet, here's how to, uh, here's how to decipher it. So that's great. But the broader question of like, who do you raise from and what do they look for? And why are half my investors telling me that my idea is too small and the other half of my investors telling me that my idea is too big? Right. <laughs> and like, which, by the way, is one of the classic things. Half the people will say, well, this is really small and I don't see how it could be bigger. And the other half will be like, you're talking about this giant, enormous market. Why don't you just focus down on something you can win? And you will literally get like back to back that same opposite piece of feedback from two different investors. So it, and it goes through how to think about that, how to structure your pitch and, and all that sort of stuff. And then moving on to things like like day-to-day -day leadership of the company as CEO and strategies and approaches for doing that, considerations that, you know, things that bite you only too late and then you realize you could have avoided the problem early. Just as a simple example, I tell um, startup CEOs, you always want to go, you get the list of reasons people might take leave. For example, uh, being called up for military duty or maternity or anything else. And early on, which just you and the co-founders, you set a leave policy for all those things, which is going to feel stupid and premature. But what everybody does and what is totally wrong is instead wait until somebody gets called up for military duty or is pregnant or whatever else and says, hey, what's your policy? And then not only do you have to scramble to do it, but it feels really personal. Right. Whatever the policy is, feels like it's about that person. And so there's this pressure to go and deal with that person's specific needs. And if you, you know, if you're generous, then people can feel like it's unfair because, you know, you're doing more of this and less of that. Um, if it's stingy, then they feel like it's personal. Whereas if you do it ahead of time before there's a name attached to it, decisions are always easier when you don't know what's at stake when they're, mm -hmm. when they're made in the abstract. So it's one of those things where, you know, 30 minutes of sitting down and sort of sketching out a reasonable set of leave policies early on will save you many hours of hand wringing much later. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, and then ultimately wrapping up with uh, the wrap up of the company. Um, it turns out that, again, for that subset of companies that I call startups, which are these high growth tech companies, long term profitability really isn't an option because the investors that startups use to go create growth capital and leverage their growth ultimately need a return on their investment and need somebody to sell their shares to so that they can realize that return. So that means either selling the company or putting the company up on public markets for an IPO or bankruptcy. <laughs> Those are more or less the three options for a startup. And so it goes through some of the considerations of mostly that middle section of selling the company with a few nods to, um, to IPO and to what it means to wind down a company that has not been able to make it work. Right. Yeah, that whole end game thing I find really, really interesting and, and curious from for me. Um, you know, the, the whole idea of building a company with the ultimate goal of, of selling it and getting rid of it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, I don't know. What does that feel like as a, as a founder? You know, you put your, your blood and soul and guts and all this time and effort into building this beautiful thing. And let's say it's successful and you just hand it over and it's gone and you start another thing. What is, what does that feel like? I mean, the good news is you don't necessarily have to give it up. If you are sufficiently successful, if you manage to build a company of lasting value, then that company can operate independently. You can go through the IPO process, sell shares to the public, 
And, you know, like a Bill Gates or a, or a Steve Jobs, you can run that company indefinitely and let it endure. So, so you don't, you don't always build companies to, to end, but sometimes you do. So for example, with SparkBuy, which was the second company I founded, it was a comparison shopping service for consumer electronics. And it's something I was really excited about. It's something I really wanted to build. I didn't feel like it was my life's work. And it was right in the middle of something that a whole bunch of big companies were really excited about. I thought there was a pretty good chance that somebody was going to acquire it. And ultimately, well, ultimately, six months after the company was incorporated, Google bought us, mm-hmm. which was totally bizarre and not typical. <laughs> and in fact, in the end game story, I actually go through how that happened and you know names and roles and positions and what it looked like and try to really give people a sense of what that story is. Because again, M&A is one of those things that nobody talks about. Right. Um, sorry, M&A, mergers and acquisitions. So that felt really great because it was, I wanted to build this thing. I wanted it to exist. So I got to build it and then I got to transfer ownership of it to a big company and then help go work on that project at scale. And it worked out really well. But Glowforge is very much my life's work. Mm-hmm. I actually put myself through college building laser shows <laughs> and had a, a DJ business, which grew out of the fact that I built a laser show with my my friend Jeremy, uh, I, you know, I guess in retrospect would say co-founder, um, yeah. with, with, but, you know, at the time, college friend Jeremy and somebody said, I'll give you 50 bucks to bring that to the party tonight. And then, you know, we started doing that. And then somebody said, as long as you're here, why don't you play some music? And I owned three CDs to my name at the time. So I went out and bought a bunch of music. <laughs> And, and started listening to the radio to figure out what people wanted to hear. And, you know, one thing led to another and we turned into a pretty successful DJing business. But building laser shows is something that I love doing. And I spent years after I graduated, before graduation and after, trying to figure out a way that it made any sense as a business to build laser displays and just couldn't come up with anything. And so then to wrap around, you know, the decade and a half later and actually be in the laser business is, you know, feels feels like it was very much meant to be and uh and it's really fun to be be sort of back in this hardware space at glowforge not only making things but making things to help other people create and to go reinvent the notion of what it means for something to be homemade so that you can actually create stuff at home that's higher quality than what you'd buy from a store faster and cheaper and more easily and more personalized than going and buying that thing from a store that is just that's so exciting. It's something I could see myself doing for the rest of my life. So I very much founded Glowforge with the notion of creating billions of dollars worth of value and turning it into a large publicly traded company for the ages. Who knows what will ultimately happen? That's a goal few people reach, but I think we're we're in pretty good shape to do it. So to answer your question, your original question, what does it feel like? I think um, you don't, it's very rare that you go into a company thinking, I'm going to take this and sell it to somebody else. But for many companies, that turns out to be the right thing after a while. And then it's very bittersweet when that happens. It's, it's hard to say goodbye to something that you've, uh, you've built and created. But it's fun to have new opportunities and to try new things, uh, which is what that lets you do. Right, right. One of the topics that you cover in the book in depth is imposter syndrome. And, and so you know, everybody feels like that from time to time. But I, I thought it was an, an interesting uh, segment in there. Why are our startups such a hotbed for this phenomenon? Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, and I know that everybody feels like that from time to time. But I didn't know that when I was doing my first startup. I thought something was terribly wrong with me. Um, <laughs> I, felt, I felt like I was a big fake and people were going to catch on. And I was and by the way, I was right. There's no getting around it. The first time you're starting a company and you're CEO, 80 to 90% of the decisions you make, you are totally unqualified to be making. You are literally making it up as you go along. And if you're lucky, you have good advice and some good background that will help. Um, but startups, you know, the brutal truth is most startups fail. And what happens is you throw a lot of people at the problem of making decisions they're not qualified for. And some folks have the right combination of instinct, background and luck, probably in reverse order of importance there to survive. And, and lots of them don't. So you are faking it. You are making it up as you go along. Some people feel that weight more heavily than others. But I think the first thing is just knowing that it's OK is a huge piece of it. Right. And knowing that nobody really knows what they're getting into the first time they're taking a job like that. And by the way, that goes equally true for any of the co-founder roles. And in many cases, for many of the employee roles, because startups often ask people to step up to jobs they've never done before and do their best at it. Right. So that was sort of a starting point. But that can go further. Even as people are experienced and skilled, they may still feel like imposters, like they don't really belong there, like they're faking it, like they don't deserve their jobs, even when ample evidence is present to demonstrate that um, 
that that's not the case. And so my parents are both professors. And so I, I was looking at, at sort of the, uh, the academic research behind it. And I thought, I'm not just going to see if I can go to the source here. So I got a hold of Dr. Um, uh, Pauline Rose Clance, mm-hmm. and she is this amazing researcher who very early on in her career suffered from imposter syndrome, although she calls it imposter phenomenon, right, which right. I thought was really interesting. I'll explain why in a second. And initially described it as something that only affects women. Hmm. Um, and in fact, if you look at the original paper, it's very clear that this only affects women. And she basically interviewed a bunch of people and she found only women had this happen. No men reported it. Then she switched to anonymous surveys and discovered it happens equally often among men and women. It's just that men wouldn't admit to it when it's <laughs> face to face. Go figure. So I talked to her and and it's really interesting. So she has a do-it-yourself diagnostic. It's actually been clinically tested on her website. So in the book, I link to that. You can see to what degree imposter phenomenon affects you. The reason that she calls it a phenomenon instead of a syndrome, as she explained it to me, was that a syndrome implies a set of negative effects. But imposter phenomenon can actually be anywhere on the range of debilitating to incredibly positive and motivating. Some people feeling like they're faking it give up or try to avoid situations where they might be outed or otherwise wind up sabotaging themselves because of this lack of confidence. Other people use it to spur themselves to ever greater heights because they feel like everybody else knows what they're doing and they don't. They feel that they have to work all the harder in order to keep up. And as you can imagine, if everybody is faking it, if everybody's lost, by the way, that was a, that was a working title for the book was faking it. <laughs> if everybody's faking it, everybody's lost, then the person who takes that to heart and works to get themselves unlost as quickly and as clearly as possible is at a tremendous advantage to the people who are quietly faking it and trying not to get caught. So imposter phenomenon can actually be incredibly motivating. And, you know, everybody's going to understand where they sort of sit on that on that range from complete confidence in their abilities to total desperation. And in some cases, professional help can be really useful talking to um, a therapist or working with somebody who specializes in this when one finds that one's really crushed under this burden of uncertainty. But in many cases, just knowing and understanding what's going on can be a huge psychological relief, knowing that, you know, you're not alone and that this is really common and happens to a lot of people. Right, right. And you mentioned feeling like this with your first startup. Do you ever still feel like that today? Oh, yeah, all the time. I'll sit there. I'm looking at I'm the worst area for me is finance. And I'll sit there looking and trying to remember the difference between, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, gross and net or something really dumb and obvious. And I'll be like, I am manifestly unsuited for what I'm doing right now. <laughs> and I try to remind myself that, nope, I'm as well suited as anybody. And we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to power through this. The thing that actually just hit me like a ton of bricks and seems stupid and obvious, but, um, but it, it's the thing that I think is the most important danger of imposter phenomenon. And conversely, it's opposite. I mean, there's two extremes. One is extreme self-confidence and the other is extreme lack of self-confidence. But they both manifest in the same way, Hmm. which is you don't ask questions. Uh, If you think you know everything, you don't ask questions. If you're terrified that you're going to be outed as a fake, you don't ask questions. And that's the killer. So you need people who have just enough self-doubt Enough self-doubt to ask the questions, but enough confidence in themselves that they're not afraid to do so. And to me, that's what it's all about. I, you know, I try to wear my shortcomings on my sleeve. I've said before to my board of directors, you should just assume that if I'm telling you numbers, I'm lying to you on purpose because <laughs> they're almost certain to be malevolently wrong, not through any any ill intent on my own, but just because I tend to get that. I misremember them. I misunderstand. Them. And so, you know, this is an area where I need help. Please bear with me and and help me where you can. And by putting that out there, you know, you get the help and people understand that not everyone is strong at everything. So it's okay to sort of acknowledge your shortcomings. And the great thing about doing it is it helps you find backup. But, you know, I've also seen the reverse where people are uh, wear all their weaknesses on their sleeve and come off looking unqualified and desperate. And that doesn't quite work either. You sort of need to be in the middle where you have enough confidence about your strengths and about your business and about your team that people are willing to take a bet on you. And that when they they sort of start working with you and get into the details where you're weak, you're transparent about that. And then they appreciate that for being, you know, a small area of weakness rather than a total lack of confidence in your own abilities. So there's a narrow line there that I think most successful entrepreneurs follow. 
Although, you know, some friends of mine, Rand Fishkin, an amazing entrepreneur, founder of Moz.com, mm-hmm. uh, is just utterly transparent about all of this. Very much wears it on his sleeve and it's always been. And it suited him extremely well. So, you know, back to my earlier point, there's very little universal advice for this. There's just stories of what works for different people. And I think great entrepreneurs pick and choose very carefully from the advice that they have. They listen to the stories and, and anecdotes of what happened and draw their own lessons from it. And so that's that's what I tried to do with the book is give a smorgasbord of advice from both directions. You know, that many much advice is conflicting. So give both perspectives and give an idea of how to choose between those and tell the story so that people can draw their own conclusions and figure out what approach to leadership works for them. Or in the case of somebody who is looking at a CEO and trying to understand what they're doing so they can see why she's making the decisions she is, or at least why she might be, and what's behind and motivating those decisions. Right, right. And so the book is filled with tons of stories and anecdotes, crazy, crazy things in some cases. When when you were doing the research, gathering all this material together, what what stories surprised you the most? <laughs> you know, the, the the single line I already mentioned was Jeremy saying, I sold my multi-billion dollar company so I could do another startup. Right, right. That one just knocked me over with a feather. Um, you know, honestly, the thing that I, I knew it was going to be hard, but I didn't realize how hard it was going to be to tell the first two stories in the book. And it, and it wasn't those two stories. So one of them is about um, Alyssa, um, founder of a company, um, uh, uh, that does ephemeral instant messaging, Alyssa Shavinsky, I think, um, pardon me if I get the name wrong, and her challenges with her co-founder. The other was Sandy Lynn, founder of a company called Skilljar, and her co-founder quitting on more or less the first day of Techstars, right. <laughs> first day of Techstars, and dealing with that. Um, they're amazing, amazing entrepreneurs and incredibly brave for telling those stories. The part that shocked me was that I probably heard 10 or more stories about co-founder breakups and tragedy and uh, co-founder, I shouldn't say tragedy, but co-founder problems that ultimately led to the failure of the company um, that I was not allowed to tell. Oh. People would share that story and I'd say, the world needs to hear this. The world needs to know that it's not all sparkles and rainbows and that co-founders have problems and sometimes they're resolved and some not. Can I tell this story? And almost everybody said no. Hmm. And it, and I understand it. Um, these are not always a person's story to tell. They often involve multiple people. Right. Um, they, you know, they don't want to make their former co-founder look bad, even if it was acrimonious. They're worried about lawsuits. They're worried about what it might look like. And and one of my goals in the book is I'm not a reporter. I'm not trying to out people against their will. I'm not trying to play gotcha journalism. Right. Uh, I, I set out very clearly to say, if I'm telling a person's story, I want that person to be comfortable with the way that it turns out. Um, and so, th- so I didn't do any of the, you know, aha, I got this story and I'm going to run it. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried, I did my best to be sure that all the, all the sort of, um, the, the, the heroes of the stories approved of, of, of the stories that were out there. Um, but, uh, but it was really surprising to me how difficult it was. I actually had one other story, um, planned for that introduction, uh, that at the very last minute, um, they, they wound up saying, no, I just can't do this. I think, I think it would forever rupture my relationship with my, you know, my departed co-founder, um, and, and was sort of desperately looking for, for a replacement when I found Alyssa's story and, uh, and was able to get that, which I think ultimately wound up being, um, uh, every bit as good. But that was probably the biggest surprise was the stories I couldn't tell and just how many of them there were and how few people were willing to go and share that. Um, so ultimately I found a whole bunch of them and I think the story's full of great, great stories like that. But, uh, but it was tough going because people are, just naturally concerned, I think, about um, about what they feel like as their failures. And and to my mind, that's the most important stories to tell are those the stories of the things that didn't work. Right. right. One of the other things that I noticed in the book um, throughout the book is that you use the pronouns she and her when you're referring to um, CEOs and board members. And and even in our conversation today and a lot of the stories that are featured in the book feature female co-founder or female founders, co-founders. Um, I'm curious to know, does, is that a reflection of the way you see the world or is that a reflection of the way you want it to be? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you know, some more the latter than the former, but I've tried to just sort of, as I build out my network and, and figured out people who I admire, I've tried to 
um, bring as many different diverse perspectives into that as I can. So, um, you know, I've done some degree of angel investing and my goals generally been to try and, and have that be, uh, half those companies women led. Um, I actually, as an experiment, tried to make my Twitter feed. I, I only follow a hundred people at a time and I've tried to make those half women, which was amazing. And I wound up getting a whole different view of sort of the Twitterverse through oh, that process. It's been really, really, a really useful outcome. Um, but I think our, our industry is at a disadvantage um, mm -hmm. because we have not made uh, the opportunities available to uh, women and to underrepresented minorities that have been available to white guys like me. And as a business, I know that we are at a tremendous disadvantage if we don't set that straight. So speaking as the CEO of Glowforge, we are much more likely to fail if we don't build diversity into our culture, into our hiring. There have been plenty of studies that show that diverse teams composed of men and women and people of different backgrounds outperform homogenous teams. And because it's crucial to me to sell to a market that isn't just, you know, white guys, because we want to have a giant business that sells to people of all backgrounds, it's crucial that we hire people from all backgrounds. So that's that's something that's very important to me as sort of a leader at Glowforge. When it came to the book, um, I talked to the people I know, and I'm, I'm lucky to know a bunch of really amazing women entrepreneurs. So, you know, th there's folks who, who are in there like uh, Kate Matsudera, mm -hmm. who runs Pop Forms, who is multiple CTO, uh, m many times CTO at some great startups, you know, Decide.com and Moz.com. And we actually went to school together uh, years ago. <laughs> um, and so uh, the amazing stories from folks like her all sort of came together to, to make sense. So I, I grabbed the best stories. Um, there are a lot of women in there just because I think there's a lot of great women entrepreneurs who I respect and admire who were willing to share. And as far as the pronoun, <laughs> I talked to a friend of mine who's an author and, and he said, um, you know, it's typical to alternate pronouns. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's, yeah. well, every business book I've read for the past decade has been male pronouns. So I'm going to alternate. <laughs> <laughs> this one will be female pronouns. Um, it's a small thing, but I think it it's, helps all of us if the industry is more welcoming and more broadly welcoming. So, uh, so that was reflecting both sort of to some extent my 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 slice of the startup world, which I think is is more gender balanced than not, and to some extent the way that I hope our industry evolves. Interesting. And so, why do you think that our industry is ha is struggling with this so much? Yeah, it's strange. I mean, computer science, which has been, you know, one of the largest drivers of sort of uh, tech startups, was more gender balanced and then became less so. I spent a little time looking at this and trying to scratch my head and figure it out and then decided that much smarter PhDs and sociologists than me were working on the problem. So ultimately, I just stepped back and said, you know, where can I make a difference? And, mm -hmm. and there were really two things that I came to. One is, um, as, as somebody who is running a startup what can I do? How can I roll up my sleeves and, and make a difference in, in the work I'm doing, like writing this book and building a company? And then on the flip side, uh, when, I, when I created Robot Turtles, this game that's really designed to introduce preschoolers to programming, how can I go do that in a way that, um, that reaches out and, uh, and sort of brings in children of all backgrounds and all abilities? And one of the things that was really fun about it is as a, as a $20 box of cardboard, this is something that people of all backgrounds can get to. And, you know, being carried on the shelves of Target in Fargo, North Dakota. I lived in Fargo till I was, I was 13. Somebody actually took a picture of robot turtles in the Target that I shopped at <laughs> as a kid in Fargo, North Dakota. I was like, yeah, okay, that really feels great because now this is something that as a as a board game in Target is available to anybody. And so, you know, that's where I sort of touch the world of um, technology is 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 at the at the technology startups through the book and through my company and at the very earliest stage just through having kids. I have um, boy girl twins who are six years old very early on, and so you know, putting some some love and attention into thinking about their experience of the world. Um, that's where I'm focused at the really wickedly difficult problem of like, how did we get here? And systematically, how can we unwind it? I don't think I'm the best qualified person to solve those. So I'm trying to make a difference in the places where, where the problem touches my life, which, you know, is really at the, at the beginning and end of the pipeline. Right, right. And so I want to shift gears just a little bit now to talk about Glowforge just, just for a minute. Um, you didn't talk about it much in the book, and I assume that's because you were building it. It was just getting started <laughs> as you were finishing your book. Exactly. And you've you've touched on this a little bit, but how is Glowforge different from the other startups that you that you've that you've launched? 
you know, the easiest thing is it benefits from all the mistakes I've made, <laughs> all the learning I've done. Um, so I like to think I'm, I'm a far better founder and leader and, and, and so on in doing Glowforge. But it's been fascinating because Glowforge is a company that has huge hardware components. You know, we're busily hiring electrical and mechanical engineers and dealing with logistics and manufacturing, which is a far broader challenge than building a software-only company. But at the same time, uh, we have a massive amount of software investment. And so we're hiring software engineers as fast as we can find them on front end and back end because our software and user interface lives entirely in the cloud. The machine actually just has one button. There's hmm. no screen and no keyboard. And so, uh, so software is a core part of our experience, which really leverages a lot of the history and experience that I've had today. I've been able to found it with two of the most experienced and amazing co-founders I've ever had the opportunity to work with. Um, you know, to my, my earlier comment about dating up, uh, Mark, who sold his last company for $112 million, has had more success than I or just about, you know, any other startup uh, person you could find, um, short of Jeremy, who's still looking to start a company. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Jeremy, who sold, his comp- uh, who sold uh, Vizio for billions. Yeah. Um, and so it's been this experience of working with a double plus co-founders and then being able to build a team really quickly. And one of the great things is we've been able to circumvent some of the stuff that really slows down and causes pain to a ton of startups. Fundraising for us was actually pretty straightforward. We quickly raised an angel round and then it took us, I think, four weeks to close one of arguably the single best investor we could hope for. Um, Foundry Group and Brad Feld uh, were investors in MakerBot in um, harmonics that people make guitar heroes, Fitbit. Uh, they, they just understand hardware and those challenges as well as anybody, as well as having deep software roots, as well as just being amazing, awesome people who are great thinkers in this space. I had the, the distinctly bizarre experience of rereading Brad's book, uh, Brad and Jason's book, uh, Venture Deals, about how to negotiate your venture investment while I was negotiating my venture investment with Brad Feld and Jason, the authors of the book. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, that went by very quickly and we wound up with, uh, you know, an A double plus board of directors and uh, $9 million in the bank to go build this thing very quickly, which means we get to spend way more time and energy on solving the challenging problems and delivering an amazing device to customers than we do running around trying to raise money, trying to, you know, build awareness so that we can find investors and all this other nonsense. So we get to spend a lot more time solving the fun problems and a lot less time dealing with the, the Michigas in the book that the book deals with all the, uh, or, or a good chunk of it, the fundraising and how do you structure and all this. You know, we've, we've had the experience. We know that. So we get to go through it pretty quickly and solve the really fun problems of building value. Right, right. I've, I've heard people comment that anyone can be an entrepreneur. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, anybody can try. Um, <laughs> <coughs> I, I say that jokingly. Uh, again, most people, most startups, unfortunately, fail. Um, and I generally try to talk people out of it um, rather than into it because I think the people who really have that um, that burning desire can't be talked out of it. Um, the advice I give is really this. If you think it might be for you, there is one simple thing you can do that's going to increase your odds of success five times over and help you very quickly figure out if it's the right way to go or not. Don't go found a company. Don't go found a startup. Go work for a startup. Mm-hmm. If you think you want to start a company, find an amazing company and go work there for a couple of years. It's how I got into startups, left Microsoft and went and and worked at a startup called Wildseed for three years. And you get an education in all things startup while pulling a salary, while building out a network, while getting to impress a set of investors, the investors in the startup that you're working for with your work ethic and background, and while getting a firsthand close-up view of how, uh, how entrepreneurship works and how the founders work. It's, it's particularly easy if, you're, if, you're, if you are interviewing at a startup, if you are talented, they're excited to have you to say, look, I'm not going to dicker with you over salary. The thing that I want is to see how this works so I can do it later myself and, and say, you know, as part of coming here, I want to have just a little more transparency into that. I want to be able to have a little time with the, you know, the founders or CEOs from time to time to know what's on their minds. And, you know, and that's, 
that's an easy thing for a founding team to give and and something that they'll be excited about. In the extreme case, I've even seen people negotiate a deal that says something like, if I work for you for three years, then you are going to invest $50,000 in my startup when when I leave to go do it. Hmm. And, and I've seen a few people be that sort of directive about like, I want to deliver a ton of value to you. And, and then the, my takeaway is going to be the ability to go and, and build my own company. So um, I'd say anybody can be an entrepreneur, but not everybody's going to enjoy it. And unfortunately, it doesn't work out for everybody. So um, the best thing to do is to get close to an entrepreneur um, and, and by going to a startup and, and, uh, and learning it firsthand. And the second best thing to do is read the book. Right. <laughs> so, so looking back, if you had it to do all over again, what kind of advice would you give yourself? Starting over from the beginning, um, my zeroth startup. <laughs> I said I've done <laughs> I count. So number one was on Tela, raised over thirty million in venture capital, and and ultimately merged the company with Photo Bucket, um, which is still operating today out of Denver. With the, the CFO who I hired is running it. But my zeroth startup was after two and a half years at Microsoft. I decided this is you know year two thousand. Everybody's starting companies. I'm going to start a company. Co-founded it with a friend who was exactly like me, also a program manager. Actually worked for me there. We were going to do a massively multiplayer online game. We wrote up a forty-five page business plan, and then we started trying to figure out how to get in touch with investors. And so, you know, we started cold calling people and mailing around our business plan and basically did every single thing wrong that you can imagine. <laughs> and and uh, and it was a disaster. We wound up um, with, uh, weirdly, the U.S. Department of the Navy was really interested and talked about funding us. And then the presidential election happened and there was a change in leadership and they dropped off the radar. And it was deeply depressing. And I almost gave up on entrepreneurship permanently after that. And in fact, later when I went to start Ontella, I was gun shy in a way that was really harmful in the early Ontella days because of that terrible failure. And you know, what, what was the problem going into that? It was that all I did was read TechCrunch. All I did was read the, the blog posts of people singing the praises and, and the, the great things that happened. It was all star and roses. And when we hit bumps, we had no context for dealing with those. So if there's one thing I tell myself, and, and if it sounds like a recurring theme, it probably is, it is seek out the problems understand what failure looks like, understand the challenges that you're likely to face, because it's, it's always, you know, 10, 10 downs for every up. And often the up is big enough to, to wipe away all the downs. But if you're not ready for that, if you don't, um, if you don't have the, 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 um, the intestinal fortitude, not to mention the, you know, the bank account to write out nine months of fundraising with no dollars raised successfully, an investor pulling out at the last minute, customers who don't pay their bills or change their mind the last at the 11th hour, a competitor who, you know, seems to have magically come up with a product that looks exactly like yours shortly after, uh, you know, seeing it for the first time, then, then you're just not going to be able to survive the, the challenges that every startup faces. And the exceptions to that are rare and mostly composed of luck. Almost every successful startup is built on the back of triumphing over many frustrations and failures. So what would that advice be? It would be stop looking up and start looking down because you're going to spend more time at the beginning in you're going to spend more time struggling than succeeding. And eventually, eventually you're going to succeed. <laughs> but but you've got to be prepared for all the work it's going to take to get there. Right, right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for talking with me today. This has been a really fun time. Thank you so much for having me, Jen. This was terrific. You can reach Dan through his Twitter handle, at Dan Shapiro. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, remember to subscribe through Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.